Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Abdullah Nakhbi, along with my co-producer, Sky Shi. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond the Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. In the last few years, the validity and reliability of charities and other philanthropic work has been called into question. Topics of whether charity helps resolve greater institutional and systemic issues have arisen. How altruistic is charity? Is there a different lens through which we can view this topic? Finally, what is the end goal of philanthropy? Today, we speak with two people very familiar with charities and not-for-profit work to get their insights. For our first segment, here is Sky Shi speaking to Rio Nakane. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Headlines. My name is Sky, and I'm very pleased to be your host today. I'm joined by Mr. Rio Nakane, an expert who's worked for three plus years in fundraising. We graduated from the same program at Miguel in international development. And today we'll be having a conversation about philanthropy in general and more specifically fundraising. Rio, thank you very much for being a guest. How are you today? Yeah, really well. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So Rio, since you graduated in 2018, you've worked for three plus years for Oxfam Canada, correct? Um, I've worked for Oxfam for about a year and a half and also a um, variety of other organizations. And then also for uh, the last fundraising work that I did was uh, for a hospital foundation uh, in Vancouver. Can you speak a little more about your daily tasks and main duties? Yeah, so uh, so at Oxfam, as well as uh, the, I worked for an agency beforehand uh, that fundraised for a variety of organizations like UNICEF, UNHCR, Oxfam, MSF, uh, etc. Um, I, uh, I managed the door-to-door fundraising campaign. Um, so it was specifically focused on uh, going into neighborhoods, uh, meeting people face-to-face, and uh, uh, also just yeah, telling stories about what those organizations were doing. Um, and uh, then uh, ultimately, the, the goal was to, uh, to, to get people to join um, and become uh, monthly donors for those organizations. That sounds extremely interesting and very, very tough, though. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your challenges and main hurdles? Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, especially uh, when I was still in Montreal doing the door-to-door fundraising uh, during the winter times, uh, it would be like negative 20, negative 30 degrees and uh, uh, with a humongous snowstorm. And we would still have a shift to do and uh, actually go uh, knock doors in the neighborhoods and people would not want to open the doors because it's super cold outside too. Um, so, so just, uh, yeah, the, 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 the weather was definitely a challenge when I was uh, still uh, in uh, Montreal. And then in Vancouver, it was uh, in the winter times. Again, the rain was just when, when we would keep track of like the streets that we have gone through, uh, it was uh, really hard to keep paper track <laughs> during a rainy season. Uh, and uh, having all the material that you carry and uh, also at the same time making sure that they, they don't get wet was, uh, was definitely a challenge. It was a, it was a challenge that uh, was still, it, it still made it fun because of the people that I worked with. Fascinating. How did you convince people to open the doors and pay you guys on a monthly basis? Right. So, uh, yeah, the, the door opening, I think 
the, the way that, uh, yeah, the way that I presented myself was really, um, really me as a person, Rio Nakane, like who I am, uh, why I'm there, just really being upfront and clear about why, uh, why I was doing door-to-door fundraising. Um, and uh, the, the main reason is because, because uh, the reality is, is that we are, our lives are busy. Everyone, uh, uh, either that being a student or uh, after graduating, like starting a new job or having been at a job and then having kids or something and, or uh, getting close to retirement and then retiring. Like there's honestly no real, like quote unquote, good time to be uh, thinking about uh, charities or like donating to a cause. Um, and uh, the, the face-to-face opportunity that, that uh, I get to have with people really, really uh, uh, was an opportunity to pause and um, just stop and think about what is happening, not only in our neighborhood, in our backyards, but also internationally, globally speaking, uh, and being able to tell a snippet of that story. Um, and that uh, resonated with many people, uh, really personalizing uh, the matter of um, international development and uh, the, the need uh, in different countries, such as like Syria, any uh, Middle Eastern countries that uh, have been in war, um, many refugee camps that, uh, uh, that require uh, additional funding and support. Um, and a dollar here uh, can go so much further uh, in, in different countries. So that, that is, uh, yeah, that, that's ultimately what, what caused many people to, uh, to donate that $1 a day, like a cup of coffee uh, <laughs> is, is what many people, uh, like the, the, the cliche is that, you know, I give up the cup of coffee, but it's honestly an investment to, to our future generations to be able to make sure uh, they have, they're, they're able to have the basic human rights, like water, food, shelter, uh, the very essentials, because that, that's something that is not met um, in, in many other countries. Very interesting, Rio. Would you say that you chose your undergraduate studies and international development because you already had a passion for fundraising and charities, or rather the opposite? Um, I would say that, uh, so I started uh, working in fundraising uh, part-time while I was at McGill. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, it was a really great part-time job because it was literally whatever I studied in my classroom, um, uh, in international development was exactly what I would be able to talk about, uh, door to door, uh, just, just kind of finding out things, uh, in the developing countries, um, and, uh, yeah, being able to tell those stories and uh, personalize it a little bit more, uh, because I, I am, I was studying it. Um, so I, I would definitely say that like the international development program, at McGill um, has caused me and uh, has has developed me uh, to be a better fundraiser. Um, but also, yeah, the fundraising itself, like I, I the, the more uh, time I spent in it, uh, the, the more I realized um, how crucial that work is uh, to, to ensure that charities uh, can, uh, can continue to uh, be funded and also have that donor base, expand that donor base uh, from, um, from just a few people to, a group of, uh, to make it into a movement, so to speak. Speaking of the challenges that you faced, can you speak a little bit more about the misconceptions that people have about charities and fundraising? Misconceptions. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people uh, tend to see like fundraise, like um, th- I've experienced a lot of people not being a fan of fundraisers being paid. Um, a lot of people want fundraisers to be just doing it out of 
the the goodness of their hearts <laughs> um goodwill yeah exactly um but but in reality like fundraising and like just uh having fundraisers paid fundraisers um on like a living wage is really crucial to ensure that uh that um uh, campaigns and organizations uh, missions uh, can uh scale up um and really uh, make a bigger impact um so, so I, I really, I really believe that uh, fundraisers, um, like paying uh, fundraisers fairly, and um, actually, like, yeah, have, having more fundraisers um, in fundraising campaigns and fundraisers in place is uh, is really crucial to be able to, uh, yeah, have organizations uh, meet their goals. Excellent. Then you were lucky in a sense that you work with two or three different NGOs before COVID. And then you have the, the privilege of being physically there and talking to people face to face. Nowadays, though, since COVID, do you believe that this industry has changed drastically? And if so, how would you do the same job via Zoom? That's that's a great question. Um, so so uh, I have actually kept in touch with uh, quite a few of my um, uh, past coworkers uh, at Oxfam as well as um, the other um, uh, agency and. Uh, yeah, they, they have uh, initially when COVID really hit, uh, they had uh, fully shifted to uh, telefundraising, so like phone fundraising, uh, instead of uh, it being uh, the face to face. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's not necessarily the most, it, it's not equally as effective, but it is still a reality that we live in. Um, and uh, the, yeah, there, there, is, there is still something missing from. Uh, or, or there are also organizations that have just uh, gone uh, with like uh, having masks on and like still doing face-to-face, but with a little bit more precautionary measures in place. Um, but definitely like uh, telephone raising, like so phone, phone fundraising instead of face-to-face and also events going virtual um, and uh, yeah, everything going virtual as, as everything else in the world, uh, fundraising really had to adapt to that as well. Financially ways, do you know if fundraising has gone up or down since COVID? Um, I don't know the specific numbers of how how organizations have been performing, but from what I um, have heard, uh, yeah, I don't I don't want to speak out of place because I I honestly don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I I know that it has been a challenging time for many organizations to be able to continue to do the work, not only because of the funding missing, but also because of the restrictions that many uh, countries have had uh, or had to put in place, and uh, also like the uh, the resources not being uh, trans, uh, yeah, transported as easily as it used to before. Rio, please correct me if I'm wrong, but as a fundraiser, you're required to meet some goals on a monthly basis. So what happens if you don't meet them? So it depends. Um, so uh, when it comes to, uh, when, when it came to face-to-face fundraising and like the, the door-to-door campaigns that I did, um, it was... Uh, yeah, it, there were like they there they weren't specifically monthly like quotas uh, that that like needed to be hit for sure um, like uh, that that was set in stone. It was uh, goals that were set, um, and uh, it was just um, uh, it it was my manager's job to see whether or not uh, the the cost versus benefit was there. But uh, it, the the especially when it comes to monthly donations it's it's really uh, uh it's really the long long run uh, that really matters so it's the matter of um uh because because uh, the roi the return on investment really doesn't appear until 
the one-year, two-year marks uh, met. Uh, and um, the average monthly donor gives for around three to five years. Um, and uh, given that statistic, um, it uh, really did, um, it, 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 is, it is very much worth uh, the organization's um, investment, uh, not only to get that return over the years, but also uh, to get uh, an extra exposure of the organization and the work that is being done. Uh, the, the donors that would have never actually started giving or start, like even heard about the organization um, would be able to be reached uh, by having uh, by having face-to-face fundraising in place. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about the long run, can you give us an example of a project that came to fruition thanks to your team and your efforts? Yeah, definitely. Um, one particular program, I let me think, uh, in uh, um, Indonesia that's happening right now by Oxfam called the Creating Spaces uh, program. Um, uh, it's... Uh, uh, from the last I heard, it is going really well and uh, uh, making progress uh, to uh, advance women's rights uh, in Indonesia um, and uh, educate uh, women uh, with uh, yeah the the rights that they have uh, the right uh, the rights in regards to uh, their health and uh, also uh, uh, being able to vote uh, in different communities. Yeah, we we have been able to by having the members on board and uh, by being able to leverage. Uh, the government relations that uh, Oxfam has with uh, different countries. Um, uh, they were able to uh, change policies that are in place. Um, and um, uh, that, that, is, that is really thanks to the regular donors and also thanks to um, the, by, by having members on board, it, it really uh, amplifies uh, the volume of, uh, of those uh, campaigns and projects. So Rio, now I want to ask you a question about the donors. For the people who have been very charitable over the years, what characteristics do you observe and do we see any patterns, any commonalities among them? A lot of the people that um, have made the decision to donate to one organization um, tends to be more willing to donate to other organizations. Um, And uh, a lot of the people that stick with... um, yeah, like stick with not donating or stick with a single organization tends to really stick with that only thing. Um, so, so I have, uh, yeah, there, there are definitely like humanitarian organizations that are um, a little bit more focused on international uh, work uh, that uh, uh, some, some people would give to all the international work organizations and other people would uh, stick kind of locally to, to what happens in our backyard. Um, and I personally uh, think, uh, my, my personal opinion is that they're both important. It's like, it's not only our own neighborhood, but also international that like we should like right now with global globalization, like the world is kind of our backyard. Um, so we want to be able to support uh, not only those that are in our community, in our country, in our city, but also people that are overseas uh, that uh, don't have it as good as uh, <laughs> uh, people that are uh, living here in Canada. Um, so we, we, we want to make sure that, uh, yeah, I, I really, I believe that it, it, is, uh, it is both important, equally as important um, that, yeah, that needs to be highlighted uh, for those that, um, that, that tend to just focus on local subjects. Absolutely, thank you for that. And last but not least, can you speak about the future of fundraising? The future of fundraising—that's that's a fascinating topic. Um, it's um, 
there, uh, when, when I was still in the fundraising uh, role um, last year, there were some talks about like having uh, like the virtual reality stuff, like uh, getting to fundraising and uh, being able to use the technology to really show what is uh, going on in the international uh, in in the different countries like life and being able to um, uh, you utilizing that um, uh, for uh, for communication with donors um, and uh, also uh, conveying uh, more people to become donors. Um, so that's that's one aspect. Um, and I, I I do believe that face to face fundraising is uh, still going to be here to stay. Face to face conversation with someone else um, is really the the best way that you can you can. Uh, you can deliver a message. Um, and uh, when it comes to uh, like many of those that are in, in different countries, in uh, developing countries um, around the world, um, it, uh, the, the fundraisers are essentially representing them for people that can't be there to represent themselves. Um, and yeah, uh, if, if we could fly them over and uh, let them explain the issue to the person at the door, uh, that would be great. But uh, that is uh, that is much harder to do than uh, to have um, to have fundraisers um, to to be delivering that message to the people um, at uh, doors or on the street. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I, I'm hopeful that uh, people will um, now now with the internet and uh, with people being able to really understand what's happening around the world a little more. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, more people will uh, continue to be. Uh, philanthropic and uh, uh, start caring about uh, about things that happen uh, globally. Thank you very much, Rio. Very well put. Those were all the questions that I had for you today. Any concluding remarks or comments? Uh, yeah, no, uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, and uh, I, I do really encourage you to uh, yeah, look into um, different organizations. Uh, research is really key. Um, for anyone uh, that's listening, uh, being able to uh, understand what the organizations do and uh, uh, really, uh, yeah, the more you get to know what's happening, um, the, 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 more, the more your dollar really starts counting. Um, so, so I do encourage everyone to, uh, to read up on uh, uh, different news and different uh, organizations that are out there. Thank you very much, Rio, for being a guest today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Sky. Once again, that was Skyshi speaking to Rio Nakane. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us at Beyond the Headlines. Here's my conversation with Serena Purdy, Chair of Friends of Kensington Market. I'm Serena Purdy. I'm the Chair of Friends of Kensington Market. It is a volunteer and donation-driven nonprofit organization. And our whole thing is that we love Kensington Market and we work as hard as we can to maintain a sense of community here um, and, and to fight for what makes Kensington, Kensington. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Kensington. Having lived in Toronto for several years, I always love my time in Kensington. So um, one day may live there, but yeah, really, really great area of the city and uh, uh, if listeners haven't uh, haven't checked it out, I would I would highly encourage it. Um, we work very closely with um, the Church of Saint Stephen in the Fields up the street. They are a charity, and so um, we have you know charitable organizations that are part of the network of of organizations and people that we work very closely with. Um, it is 
it's different rules and there's there's a few different um things that have come into place for for not for profits as well that that sort of changes the way that we operate um and you know our our responsibilities as as a board and as an organization um for example a charitable organization if you make a donation to them and you say i want this to go to your food program it has to go to the food program um, and unless you make a general donation, um, they don't really always, they can sometimes struggle to have that, that pot of general money that keeps the organization going. Mm -hmm. um, charitable organizations also usually um, have a building or a home base, Friends of Kensington Market as, as a nonprofit organization that's a, a community organization, doesn't necessarily have a home base. We've got a, a number of, of community buildings that we operate from depending on what we need, but we don't have like the church has the church. <laughs> okay. okay, cool. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for explaining what, what you do and uh, how, how your how your not for profit works. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, can we get into the questions? Is that cool? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So, um, tell me what people think of when they hear the word charity. Um, philanthropy has almost exclusively positive connotations associated with it. What are people missing when they think about philanthropy? Well, there's a long history to the culture around philanthropy, and I'm not I'm not a historian, but I I, um, I view it as a process by which um, people in higher socioeconomic or better better off circumstances uh, donate money and time uh, to help people in worst social circumstances. Um, and it's very much like that with charity. I know initially it was it was premised on the idea of condescension, mm. which has become a, a, a pretty bad word, but initially just meant if you were in a higher class, imagine what it's like to be in a worse position and how it would feel. And to condescend was, was to attempt to relate to people and, and build a sense of kinship across classes. Um, and I think the history of that word and how we understand the term condescension now speaks a lot to the that relationship. Wow, thank you. So, yeah, I'm learning new things. That's that's, a, that's an excellent history of uh, how how it started and um, what you know how people perceive it. Um, uh, so going back to Friends of Kensington Market, uh, what are some of the institutional ob obstacles? based by your organization and uh, what, what is your organization doing to overcome some of those? I think many community organizations struggle with and are, are struggling more and more with displacement. Mm -hmm. And that is, it's less an institutional obstacle than it is an organizational challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are consistently losing the community that you're you're struggling to keep together and keep stable, and you're losing that sort of community force and and um, buy-in and 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 power, you it's it's harder and harder for you to advocate yes. for you know the things that you need to keep people together, like residential and commercial affordability, mm -hmm. um, the things that make up a community, the things that make up a culture, right. Um, institutionally, I think it's, it's often a size issue, you know, communities, even one like Kensington market, that's well known, 
um, it's it's a small place. Everybody knows where our borders are, <laughs> and like it's it's not that big a place. Um, part of the way that we've bridged that gap is as a friends of organization. You don't have to live in the market. You don't have to um, have a, a business in the market to love Kensington Market, to be a friend of Kensington Market. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we've been able to have a little bit more, like a larger membership, have a little bit more uh, reach and engagement because people, you know, they grew up here and they moved away or they, they came here once and it was the first time they really felt accepted in the city, but they can't afford to live here. Or, you know, there's so many ways that people have a relationship to this place that that builds love for it. Um, and in, in many ways, because we're a sort of village in the heart of the city, um, we're, we're a community of communities. Other communities can look at us and say, oh, that's, that's very similar to the issues that we're facing over here. And so that gives us a bit of a, a more of an ability to, to transcend our borders. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent, yeah. Um, I, th I think that this might have some overlap with your previous answer. But uh, what are some of the systemic barriers that charities in general face? Uh, are there problems with how money is distributed or uh, having to deal with partners that you might find difficult to work with? Um, so what are, what are some of those issues that, uh, that are faced by charities as well as not-for-profits? Um, I can't speak for charities writ large, but I think broadly, even agencies of the city that are not-for-profits our job is sort of to, to catch people who are falling through holes in the social safety net. And when there are policy failures, like with the housing crisis, where there were failures at all levels of government, we get more and more squeezed. You know, when we, when the pandemic hit, there were so many charitable organizations, nonprofit organizations, mutual aid groups, warning of the, the, the repercussions, the economic repercussions, repercussions for small businesses, the repercussions for, for housing. And it was, it was sad to see that, that instead of building those compassionate structures, we ended up relying heavily on, on charities and mutual aid networks that to, to try to bridge those gaps. Um, and it does become more and more heartbreaking work as as those it, structures fail mm -hmm. because you can't catch everyone. And you also can't truly measure the negative impact of those policies because those charities then also become the buffer, buffer zone that, that shields you from really seeing the impact of bad policymaking. Yes, yeah, I think that's kind of the heart of what I wanted to discuss. And I think that's the commonality between not-for-profits and charities. They're both trying to help people who are sort of slipping through the cracks and um, not receiving the help they, they deserve. And I know you're policy-minded, so, um, you know, I've done some work on this myself uh, with ACORN, but uh, what sorts of policies do you think would be uh, maybe the most pertinent ones that would help um, people who are who are struggling in in Kensington Market and in Toronto uh, as a city. I'd say the most major things that will help communities are are really bolstering um, anything that helps with residential and commercial affordability. Mm -hmm. So, I think certainly 
when we talk about residential affordability in a place like Kensington Market, we're not just talking about gentrification. We're talking about, you know, and, and in Toronto as a city, we're talking about financialization. And we're talking about, you know, the real estate market really squeezing people out because housing is now seen as, as an asset and people are parking money. Um, and it's, you know, it's ten real tenant supports. It's, you know, seeing the merger of all of the land um, tribunals into, into one mega tribunal really eroded communities' ability to stand up for each other. Um, on, the, on the commercial side, real supports for for small businesses you know kensington market isn't just a community of neighbors it's a it's a it's a community of you know food from home from all over the world mm -hmm. it's a community of of small grocers of you know people who know how to to repair shoes and and leather and and you know things that help a, a city to be healthy and so many of our shops were displaced by corporate cannabis dispensaries over the last little while. And there has been a massive increase in commercial rents without any real supports for small businesses through various lockdown measures. And it's been really disappointing to see how the lockdown was handled in relation to small business supports and in relation to, you know, service workers and precarious folks. I think, um, you know, as somebody who is a PhD student in public health, lockdowns have their place and done well, they can really, really help. Um, but without that support and without real uh, intention on the part of, of leadership, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people can fall through the cracks and a lot of dreams can die. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And I, I think we're you know, most people are pro lockdown in the sense that we want to make things better and recover from this. But at the same time, I, I absolutely agree that we need help. We need stimulus for for especially those those things, those people, those businesses that make uh, a community like Kensington Market so vibrant and so unique. Right. So I think, uh, yeah, absolutely in, in agreement with you on, on all of those points. Um, I guess. Coming back to like a, a greater charity um, lens, uh, from, my from my perception, there's sort of a contradiction that exists in running a charity in an ideal way. So you want to help people who need it immediately, uh, but you also want to make it so that uh, the, the necessity for charity no longer exists. Uh, would you agree with that? And how can we address uh, materially affecting people's immediate lives through charity while also aspiring to solve sort of greater societal ills that lead to the necessity of charity? Well, I think there's there's a few things to unpack there. Um, I think we would all prefer to rely on compassionate systems and be better off if we had compassionate systems instead of kind of having to repeatedly rely on the goodwill of, of people on a day-to-day -day basis, particularly in situations like this where everybody's getting squeezed and everybody's getting burned out. Um, it's, it's harder and harder to show up for each other in, in that kind of way. But people, you know, it, it's one of the only things that's been keeping me sane through this is seeing how people have been showing up during this time, um, despite their exhaustion and despite their, their circumstance. Um, 
I think there's also sometimes a perception that, and, and this may be because there have been some, you know, fairly high profile examples of, of charitable organizations that were either poorly run or were um, exploitive with their finances. Um, you know, it's not a universally loved idea. Um, and, you know, when you do see a charity that is incredibly well run, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's beautiful. Like, I, I would say St. Stephen in the Fields is a great example of that. It's very conscientiously run. Um, but not everybody that gets into this has all of the skills, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to find people who are, for example, financially minded, um, that are also charitably minded or community oriented. Um, and when you do, they're, they're absolute gems and they can really bolster organizations like this. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's definitely, you know, just because you, you show up with, with a good heart doesn't mean you'll be able to do all of the things that an organization needs in order to function in a healthy way. And I think we need to do some, there's, there's some training involved. It takes years to really build up those skills and, and to find the right people. Um, yeah, sorry for the kind of no. rampant answer, but. <laughs> no, very good answer. Uh, yeah, I think there is a lot of cynicism around charity, especially I think I especially see it when I see forums online, like personal finance forums, where mm -hmm. people are like, what is the best charity to give to if I want to help my tax status, for example? And I'm like, that's like, is that really the only reason you're giving to charity? Um, mm -hmm. And then obviously, you know, there's been sort of high profile cases such as the We Charity, which, you know, um, still ongoing sort of, but um, I understand why people are a little bit cynical and, uh, don't feel uh, that that money that they give to charity is necessarily going to uh, solving sort of bigger problems. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add with regards to charity and and what we can, uh, you know, how we can sort of help that sort of le level of cynicism, but at the same time uh, make sure that we are addressing uh, the bigger problems in uh, that that create the need for charity. I think there's so many answers to that. My first impulse is to say, uh, get involved with one if you have any doubts. Um, really get to know them from the inside um, and, and figure out what your passion is. Um, I would also say, following on your last comment, there's, you know, there's so many problems with that, you know, billionaire philanthropist, billionaire knows best um, model of of charitable giving, um, because not only are they extracting more wealth and controlling more capital over time, which is is no way to actually promote real wealth redistribution, um, but they're driving the direction of of charity, which is a serious problem. And so, yes, I mean charitable work. Like really when done well, if you're going out into the world and you're giving it your all for nothing in return, mm. it's the most noble thing you can do. Mm. But we really do, we can't lose sight of the larger structures that, that make charities necessary. Right. That, that make that work necessary. 
Of course, yeah. Yeah, I think people get lost in the idea that, and, and I mean, they're, they're right to, to be sort of skeptical because there is so much sort of PR being done through charity and, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to start thinking that altruism isn't a thing anymore. But I, I think that it's important that we uh, remember that there are people doing good work for the right reasons. And yeah, I, I think that's a re really good place to leave it. Um, would you like to tell us how people can get involved uh, in Friends of Kensington Market and uh, what can listeners do to help? Sure. Um, you can visit our website, fokm.ca or we have uh, Facebook and Instagram, Friends of Kensington Market. And uh, you can either sign up to the mailing list or uh, follow along on our social media for updates. And you can um, make a donation through the website. We'd love to have regular monthly donors. That would be a big help. It supports our longer term programs like the My Friends tab program, which helps people who are struggling to make ends meet, shop like they normally would, and then when they go up to the cash register, they say, put it on my friend's tab and we cover it through donations. That's, that's an amazing thing. That's, that's extraordinary. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. And uh, yeah, this has been eye-opening and enlightening. Thank you so much, Serena. Thanks for the invitation. Once again, that was Serena Purdy. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss charity and philanthropy. Today's show was produced by Sky Shee, Connor Fraser, and me, Abdullah Nakhvi. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you miss any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you're a fan of our show and want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.